Today's scripture comes from the book of Ruth, chapter 2, verses 1 to 23. You can find it printed in your bulletin and follow along as I read it aloud. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her, and also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young woman, women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things that we're going to do in the month of December is we're looking at this very short story, this book of Ruth, and I think it's one of the nicer stories that you find in the New Testament. Uh, people say it's kind of like the ancient version of a Cinderella story, and especially when you think about the time 
period that it's occurring in. It takes place during the period of the judges, and if you've ever read the book of Judges, uh, it's not a very pleasant book because people are doing uh, what they want, basically. They're doing what is right in their own eyes, and as a result, there's a lot of evil. There's a lot of spiritual darkness that is taking place. And, uh, you know, Judges, of course, is right before Ruth, and let's say you're going to read the Bible in order, and you, you read Judges, and then you get to Ruth. And it, it's kind of like this nice uh, reprieve where uh, you read about a whole bunch of messed up stuff that's going on, and uh, maybe you're, you're tempted to kind of fall into despair and be like, whoa, this hu humanity is terrible. And then you get this nice little story of Ruth, and it's a very wonderful and beautiful story. And I think it's kind of like watching the news, and uh, dare I say, especially watching the news these days, where it seems like there's so many bad things going on in the world that sometimes it's nice to hear a story where somebody donates their kidney uh, in order to save another person's life. And maybe when we hear a story like that, uh, in the midst of all of these uh, negative stories, it's kind of like the very thing that saves us from falling into deep despair over the condition of humanity and the condition of the world. Uh, I think a story like Ruth can, can remind us uh, even of that, even in our world where we hear things like, North Korea, mass shootings, sexual misconduct, racial division, all of these things that are swirling around in the news. And even a story like Ruth, I think, can remind us when things are dark that God is present, God is always in control, God is always good, and God is filled with great love and compassion. Now, one of the themes that we're going to follow through this book is this theme of love, and I'm going to apologize ahead of time because I'm going to be very repetitive, and I'll probably say this every sermon, but there is this very important Hebrew word that uh, unless you really uh, understand this word, it's a little bit hard to capture the fullness of the story of Ruth, and that Hebrew word is hesed. Hesed is translated as kindness, which we saw in chapter 1, which we see today in verse 20. Uh, it's translated different ways uh, in other parts of the Old Testament, like in our Psalm 59 call to worship. It's translated as steadfast love, but this word you know, the English word love is not quite enough to capture the full meaning of this word hesed because it, it is love, it is loyalty, it is mercy, it is goodness, it is kindness, it is compassion, it is covenant faithfulness. It is all of these things wrapped into this nice little Hebrew word hesed. Now in chapter 1, uh, at the beginning of the story, just like all good stories, we're introduced to a context, we're introduced to two of the main characters, Naomi and Ruth. Naomi and her husband, they moved to Moab because of a famine in Bethlehem. And while they are in, no in Moab, uh, Naomi's husband dies. Not only that, her two sons marry Moabite women, and then her two sons die after about 10 years with no grandchildren. And therefore, Naomi is somewhat left alone with Ruth, this Moabite daughter-in-law who pledges to devote herself to Naomi and go with her back home to Bethlehem. So Ruth is essentially saying, I will leave my land and I will go to your home and become a foreigner. And today we're going to continue to that story in Bethlehem, and we're introduced to another major character in the story of Ruth. Well, the story of Naomi, but the book of Ruth. Now when you read this chapter, I think what emerges immediately is that Boaz is a pretty good man. Uh, he shows kindness. You know, Ruth tells Naomi that she is going out to glean uh, among the ears of grain, and if you're not sure what gleaning means, basically uh, to glean is you go out to the field, and when the harvesters are harvesting grain or wheat or whatever they might harvest, sometimes things drop on the floor, 
And gleaning is basically picking up that which is, has dropped on the floor. It's kind of like picking up the leftovers. Now, in Old Testament law, it actually stipulates that when you harvest, you should not gather the gleanings after a harvest. And the reason is so interesting. The reason is so that the foreigner, so that the orphan, so that the widow can have some leftovers from that harvest and basically have something to eat. So even in the law, you see uh, that there is a concern for the poor and the destitute, and it's one of the ways that the law shows uh, compassion to the poor and the destitute. And Ruth and Naomi, they fit into that category of people, which is why Ruth tells Naomi, I am going to go into this field in order to glean. Ruth, she goes and she happens to end up in the field of Boaz. And Boaz is a relative of Elimelech. And our first impression of this guy Boaz is, is very positive because the first thing you notice here is how he greets his employees. He says this, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And these are very positive, pleasant, uplifting, cheerful words full of grace. And uh, Boaz here is the boss. And as the boss, he provides, seems to provide this nice, positive, good working environment. And uh, that's one of the ways in which he is modeling this idea of hesed. And uh, I think you can tell the character of a person uh, not by how they treat people who are significant in the world, but you can really tell the character of a person based on how they treat those who are uh, insignificant by worldly standards. Because people tend to treat those who are significant by worldly standards pretty well because there's usually something to be gained when you do that. But when you treat somebody who uh, is seemingly insignificant, what that says is you value uh, a person's dignity. Uh, You value humans. I heard professional teams, when they gather information on a player that they want to sign or that they want to draft in sports, one of the things that they do is they actually talk to the equipment managers, uh, they talk to the concession workers, they talk to the janitors, because they want to see what kind of person is this. How does this player treat people who are uh, not as important as perhaps those in upper-level management? And I remember a few months ago, uh, I got to meet this pastor, uh, this pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle, uh, Jim Simbola, and I don't know if you've ever heard of him. And I like telling this story because uh, he is such a, a humble guy. Uh, once in a while, there are these like pastor gatherings in New York where a bunch of local ca- pastors gather, and like it's kind of like networking. You meet other pastors and things like that. And uh, let me be honest with you, uh, I'm, I am a pretty insignificant person, pastor, church leader in New York. Uh, Nobody really knows uh, who I am. Nobody really knows about Good News Church. Uh, Everybody else has probably more giftedness, more connectedness, more they're doing some innovative things. Uh, No, I don't think anybody would really uh, care to know me because I don't really have anything to offer other people. At one of these meetings, I happened to sit at the same table as Jim Simbola, and he has this huge church in Brooklyn. He's been uh, uh, the pastor of that church for many, many years. And uh, as, as we sat at the same table, um, you know, he's a popular guy. Everybody wants to talk to him. He actually came up to me, right? He came up to me, and he's, he introduced himself. He says, hi, my name is Jim. Uh, what's your name? I was like, oh, you want to talk to me? My name is Sam, <laughs> right? He's like, oh, so what you tell me a little bit about your life. Tell me a little bit about your story and, and your ministry and what you're doing. And I was like, I told him, oh, you know, I'm a pastor of this small church. We meet uh, in, in Manhattan, it's called Good News Church. He's like, oh, that's great. How, you know, how's it going? What are some of the struggles you had? And he took this genuine interest in me. I was like, what the, right? Why is this guy talking to me? This guy's like so important. I'm like, nobody. 
But that told me a lot about him, and uh, you know, my respect level for him like went way up. I'm like, wow, the fact that he would kind of talk to me and uh, you know, take a genuine interest in me, somebody who's seemingly pretty insignificant, uh, I thought said a lot about his character. And you see, when we see Boaz here, he greets the reapers. I think it tells us the kind of man that he is. You know, he is the m- kind of man who cares for uh, his reapers, his, I guess, employees. Uh, he's kind to them. He eats with them and all of these things. Now, what's really interesting about Boaz is he also takes notice of somebody else. He takes notice of Ruth. And he asks his servant in charge, who is this woman? And the servant in charge says, well, she's a Moabite woman. She came back with Naomi, and she asked to glean uh, after the reapers. And then what Boaz does next is pretty remarkable in terms of his kindness and generosity. Then he speaks directly to Ruth, and he says to her, stay at this field, right? Stay at my field and keep close to my female servants. And eventually we learn the reason for why he says that. Basically, he's protecting her from uh, assault and... uh, you know, many things have not changed. So uh, as I was writing notes, I wrote, wow, men are pigs back in the ancient world too. Uh, because today, men, uh, a lot of the news emerging shows that men are pigs today as well. And there's a lot of uh, sexual misconduct and assaults happening today. Well, ancient world, similar things, right? And so Boaz knows that this stuff is going on and he is protecting Ruth from being assaulted. He says, stay at my field, be in my protection. And then he commands his workers. Uh, he institutes, right, a commentator said this, Boaz institutes the first anti-sexual harassment policy in the Bible and basically says, nobody, uh, nobody assault her, nobody touch her, don't do anything to her. This is Boaz. Now, not only that, but then he does something amazing as well. He invites her to places where she wouldn't normally belong based on her position of status. First, he tells her, you know what, when you are thirsty, go and drink water that the young men have drawn. Now, that might not sound unusual to us, but that's not an ordinary gesture in the ancient world because typically, you know, foreigners would be the ones who would draw water or women would be the ones who would draw water for Israelite men. Ruth, she is both a foreigner and a woman, which means that she should be the one drawing water for the men. But Boaz says this, drink water freely of the water that these Israelite men have drawn. Then he says this, he invites her to a meal. Since Ruth is a Moabite woman, you know, she probably kept her distance. She knew the social conventions of the time. Uh, She probably made an effort not to impose since she was poor, since she was a foreign woman who was gleaning the leftovers from the harvesters. She is someone who is lower in status based on social standards. She doesn't belong at that table. And yet Boaz invites her to eat with them and gives her food in abundance. I don't know if you've ever been in a position like Ruth, but that kind of radical hospitality and generosity, uh, I don't think it's all that common. I think it would have probably been a little bit unexpected for her, something uh, somewhat unique. Because, you know, uh, in, in a vast majority of social contexts, I think the truth of the matter is there are always these status markers, right? Whether it's explicit or implicit. For example, in high school, uh, it's, it was clear, at least when I went, I know the definition of cool is different now. And uh, when I was in high school many, many years ago, you had the cool kids who were usually the ones who played sports. 
and then you had the uncool kids, and they were the ones who were usually in band. And, you know, it wasn't explicit. <coughs> oh, I'm sure most of you probably were in band, right? Band or orchestra. But I think it's flipped now, right? The nerdy kids today are the cool kids today. Anyway, uh, it's, it's not explicit, but you have these status markers even uh, amongst kids and students. But you have explicit status markers as well. You know, if you work in some kind of company or if you work in some kind of firm or, or something like that where there's a lot of employees, it's pretty clear that uh, there's uh, the executives or there are the partners of a firm and they're the ones who have the greater status. And most of us probably desire to be higher up in status, whether it is implicit or explicit, because when you're higher up, what happens? You get more respect, you get more dignity, more honor, and all of these other kinds of benefits. But the other thing that happens, I think, when you are higher up in status is it becomes very easy to ignore the people who are below you, right? If you were one of the uh, uncool kids, did one of the cool kids ever invite you to their table for no apparent reason and then come serve you lunch? Never happened to me. If you were an intern in a large company, did the CEO come up to you and say, hey, I want to take you out to a meal. Come and eat with me and, and the executives. That kind of stuff usually doesn't happen, right? You don't, you don't mix uh, different statuses. And so when Boaz says to Ruth, come here, eat some bread, dip your morsel in the wine, this is a radical gesture that shows uh, his humility, his kindness, his compassion, and his love. Now here is a question that we should ask. Why did Boaz do it? Why did Boaz show such kindness, which, again, in the Hebrew word for that is hesed. Why did Boaz show such hesed to Ruth? Ruth wonders that too. And she asks him explicitly in verse 10. And there are actually two answers to this question. You know, the first answer is explicit, and it comes from the mouth of Boaz. He tells her, you know, I know what you did. For Naomi and how you left father and mother and your native land to come to a foreign land with people that you did not know. Uh, in other words, I think Boaz is hinting at, you know, Ruth, you have done this wonderful act of kindness for Naomi, and I hope that the Lord rewards you for that uh, great act of kindness. But there's also a second reason in terms of why Boaz did that that is somewhat hidden, I think, in the text, and uh, in some ways is probably the more important reason. You know, if you look at verse 3, uh, we're told that Ruth happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Now, on the surface, it sounds like uh, something like Ruth ended up in Boaz's field by chance, by luck. She just got lucky, and she happened to end up in this wonderful man, Boaz, in his field. But, you know, almost all the commentaries point out the significance of that phrase and that sentence. And it's a little bit clearer in the Hebrew because in the Hebrew there's a redundancy going on there that alerts the reader that this is a, uh, the, the narrator is saying something special. So in Hebrew, the ver verse 3 literally says, and her chance chanced upon the field belonging to Boaz. In other words, the narrator is uh, using, I guess uh, we would call it hyperbole, except uh, instead of overstating something, the narrator is dramatically understating something in order to emphasize the exact opposite. So for example, you know, today's a cold day. I think it's like, what, 30-something degrees outside. Uh, imagine it was like negative 20 degrees outside. 
and someone came in and said to you, oh, it's not very warm today, is it? Right? That's like a significant understatement given how cold it is. Uh, and our response would probably be like, yeah, duh, right? it's negative 20 degrees outside. But we would understand that to be maybe either a joke or a way of emphasizing how cold it really is outside. And I think that's what the narrator is actually doing here when he says Ruth happened to go to Boaz's field. Because you see, it wasn't by chance, it wasn't by luck. She didn't happen to go into the field that belonged to Boaz, but the emphatic opposite point, God was actively in control behind everything executing his divine purpose for the lives of Naomi and Ruth. Ruth ended up in Boaz's field because God made it so. Chapter 1, Naomi prays that God would deal kindly, hesed, deal kindly with her daughters-in-law. And in chapter 2, we see God beginning to answer that prayer, and he is dealing kindly with Ruth. You know, this is actually one of the major themes in uh, this story in Ruth. In, in theological terms, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, it's called the providence of God. Uh, what that basically means is God is active in the world. He's actively actually holding everything together in the world, preserving everything in the world, and he's actively executing his divine purposes and his plan. And, uh, you know, I know that's a huge topic and it raises a lot of questions for a lot of people. Uh, if you want to ask some of those questions and talk about it, you're welcome to ask me. Uh, better yet, uh, come to Bible study because uh, we've talked about that uh, to exhaustion. But for today, here's what I want to do. I, I basically just want to look at this idea of God's providence from one aspect. I want to look at it from the perspective of suffering, okay? From suffering. Did you know that the Old Testament uh, highlights the fact that God is in control of all things, that God is sovereign. Not during the times of great blessing, but in particular during the times of great suffering. Because you have books like Judges and books like Ruth and books like Job, and they emphasize the point, even though it seems like God is hidden and God is not there, God is still sovereignly there and active. We just studied the book of Revelation, and I would say it's the same thing there. It's addressed to a, per a community that's being persecuted. And the message is there is Christ is upon his throne. He is king. He is sovereign. Bad things aren't happening apart from his will. And you think about it, isn't that interesting, that, that little juxtaposition of when the Bible talks about the sovereignty of God? You know, the moments when the Bible reminds us of God's providence is actually in the moments of suffering. Now, for people who suffer in life, it's easy to look at this idea of God's providence uh, as something negative. Uh, Naomi, I think, is an example of this. She looked at her life, dead husband, two dead sons, and she said, the Almighty has dealt bitterly against me in chapter one. You see, she knows that God is in control, and God is in control of the outcome of her life, and therefore, the outcome of her life, this fiery furnace that she is suffering, that she's walking through, uh, she knows that it is because of God's purposes and God's will. And therefore, she, uh, I think it's a little bit bitter towards God. You know, when we're in that, we, what do we automatically say? We say, God, if you are in control, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Why are you bringing this kind of pain and suffering into my life? You have the power to change it. Why aren't you changing it? 
and our response sometimes will be to get bitter, to get a little bit angry. And I think that's somewhat of Naomi's response here. But, you know, by the end of chapter one, she's this bitter woman, and she tells people, you know, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which basically means that the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Uh, there's this pastor. He's a retired pastor. His name is John Piper. Uh, I, you know, I read something that he said about this that I thought was pretty insightful. Uh, essentially, he says this, you know, if you're angry and if you're bitter uh, because of suffering, uh, it probably actually has very little to do with your suffering and your circumstances. But, you know, when we're going through it, that's what we tend to focus on, right? Our circumstances, the, the, our suffering. And uh, if you allow yourself to reflect a bit on your heart and the desires of your heart in the midst of suffering, then you might actually discover the, the true root of that bitterness and that anger. He says, uh, you are angry and bitter in your suffering, uh, not because of the circumstances, but ultimately because life is not going according to your plans. In other words, you assume, you're making this assumption, the way I envision my life and the way I planned out my life is better than how God would plan out my life and because life is not going according to my plans, but it's going according to God's plan, that's not right. And we get angry and we get bitter. What did Naomi, Naomi expect? What were her plans? Ah, she probably wanted Elimelech to live, right? She probably wanted her sons to marry women and have children. Uh, she probably didn't want to be starving. She probably didn't want to be a widow. But God had a different plan for her, and it diverged from her plan. And that actually sent her spiraling down into this uh, place of being bitter. But here's the wonderful thing. God showed kindness to Naomi through the kindness of Ruth and the kindness of Boaz. And through their kindness, Naomi is someone who is ultimately redeemed Remember, she is a person whose story begins and she is in a place of emptiness. But when it ends, she is actually in a place of fullness. You know, in the story of Naomi's life, God's providence, it, it was something that restored her and brought her to this place of blessing. But, of course, that doesn't always mean that God is going to do the same for all of our stories, nor does it mean that that was the ultimate demonstration of God's providence even in this story. Because this story is significant for another reason and it tells us of God's plans, God's purposes, God's providence that would take place over the course of many generations. You know, the book of Ruth, it ends with this genealogy and the son of Boaz and Ruth, a spoiler alert, right? Boaz and Ruth, they get together, they have a kid. Uh, the son of Boaz and Ruth is named Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. And then you get to the New Testament and you look at Matthew's genealogy and do you know what Matthew shows us? that Jesus himself descends from the ancestry of Ruth. Ruth is one of four women um, mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. And you think about, all right, we look at God's plan and how it affects us personally, individually, in our particular life, in our particular story, but God's plan is much bigger, and he has this whole idea of the scope of redemption. And even in this little insignificant story taking place in Bethlehem with Naomi, with Ruth, with Boaz, God ultimately had this plan to bring the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, to us so that we might be saved from our sin. God planned that. 
you know, Jesus would not only be the ultimate demonstration of God's plans, God's purposes, God's providence, but Jesus would also be the ultimate demonstration of God's kindness, God's hesed, love for us. Think about what Boaz did for Ruth. I think it, it really foreshadows what Jesus Christ would ultimately do for us. Think about this. Boaz, he invites and welcomes this foreigner of insignificant status. Jesus, he invites and welcomes us, strangers and aliens to God because of our sin. Boaz lowers himself and he shares in table fellowship with this foreigner. Jesus lowers himself and dwells amongst us so that he would share in table fellowship with us. Boaz offers to quench the thirst of Ruth through water that she ultimately did not labor for. Jesus offers to quench our spiritual thirst through this eternal living water that we ultimately did not labor for as well. Boaz elevates the status of this foreign woman to a place of safety and dignity. Jesus elevates our status by raising us in him through his resurrection to this place of safety and glory. Boaz doesn't simply give what Ruth needs, but he gives abundantly, more than she needs. Jesus pours out a kind of grace that overflows our cups and fills our hearts to such a point where we can actually feel spiritually rich even when we are materially poor. He fills our cups so much so that uh, we want to share it and demonstrate that love and that grace to others because our hearts are so full. You see, all that we see in Boaz, his love, his kindness towards Ruth, we actually see in a much greater degree in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Amazing, isn't it, friends? You see why this is such a beautiful story of God's providence and kindness? You see why this gospel story that we profess to believe is the ultimate demonstration of God's providence and kindness for us? This is the kind of story that our hearts ought to long for, to long to belong to. And if we can gain, I think, a little bit of perspective and understand that God's plans, God's purposes, God's heart are greater than we can ever imagine and understand ourselves, I think with that comes this greater sense of peace and security and purpose in our lives. Now as we move towards, this is the Advent season, so as we move towards the celebration of Christmas, the, the coming of Jesus Christ through his incarnation, becoming human, uh, becoming born of the Virgin Mary, may we also use this season, this time, to move our stories and our life towards the story of redemption as revealed in the gospel and to submit to his plans. Because if God truly is good, if God truly is kind, if God truly is loving, if God is gracious, if God is merciful, our lives are actually better in his hands than our own because he is infinitely wise. Let's pray together.